Well, if you will, please take your Bibles tonight to John chapter 11. Some of you may recall we were actually in John chapter 11 the last time I preached. I believe it was now two weeks ago. Uh, we started a ser- well, we've been in continuation of the series, uh, uh, The Healer of the Broken. But we've come to a story now of Lazarus. And if you were to study all the miracles of Christ, there are few more powerful, few more impactful miracles than that of Lazarus. And so we spoke uh, two weeks ago uh, on a few things that we'll kind of review tonight, but then we'll get into more of the meat of the story of Lazarus. So John chapter 11, we'll start reading in verse 1. The Bible says, and it's very important that you understand it is the Bible that says it, and not me. Verse number one, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Albeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now we really begin our scripture passage tonight at this verse. And as I've read this passage, this verse has stuck with me. And we'll cover many more things, but this verse has stuck with me as I've read John chapter 11. Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, 
thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Let's ask the Lord to bless the message tonight. Father, we have read a portion of Scripture tonight that is promised to be perfectly inspired. It's been kept from generation to generation for us and for our observation and for our examination tonight. Now, Lord, I pray as I've studied, and I've already asked you to help me, I pray that you would do it once more. Please help me, enable me to preach with authority, with boldness, but, Lord, with a gentleness and a grace that only comes from direction and guidance from you. Father, I pray that you would also bless those that are in the audience tonight. As many things are on our plate, no doubt, but in this small section of time, may we really focus in on what your word has for us and what your spirit is trying to tell us. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work in our hearts tonight. I pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, we looked last week at a few different things. Remember, or not last week, two weeks ago, but remember I said, out of all the miracles that we've studied thus far, probably the one that I would most like to have been involved in was the one about Lazarus. Now, we've seen some great miracles, have we not? The woman who uh, had an infirmity or an issue of blood and Christ was able to heal her almost unknowingly, it seemed, but God was so powerful in her life that she was changed. We've seen uh, sermons, we've seen messages where people had demons cast out of them. We've seen messages where folks have been raised back to life. We've seen messages where Christ was not even on site, and yet he was able to heal somebody from a remote location. And I'm thankful our God has that power. Now, if you'll recall in this chapter, we looked at three items two weeks ago. First of all, we looked at the desperate dilemma that was on hand. Now, what you must understand is, at the early point of this chapter, the dilemma was not that Lazarus was dead. The dilemma was that he was sick. The dilemma at that point was not that he was already in the grave, but the dilemma that was on Mary and Martha's heart was that, Christ, or was that Lazarus was sick. And they had sent off and summoned for Christ to come help before something worse took place. And that was the dilemma. And they went to the right man. They went to Christ. And that would be a good thing for us to do. When we have problems in our life, go to the right place. And no doubt that is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He ever liveth and abideth to make intercession for us. And that's a great promise of the Word of God. So we saw the desperate dilemma. We looked at the delayed departure of how Christ, even though he heard the news, seemed to wait, almost taking his time as to when he would go and do something for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And while that might seem extremely odd to us, the one thing that the Word of God does promise us is that Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved Martha, and Jesus even loved Lazarus. And so his departure being delayed was not for lack of love, but yet there was a lesson 
There was something that he wanted to show forth. And we looked at the delayed departure. Finally, we, we can't miss this. We can't overlook this. We looked at the disoriented disciples. And if you'll remember, we talked about how sometimes Christians just don't know when to shut up. And if you don't like the word uh, S-U, uh, then I will say be quiet. And so we, sometimes as Christians we try helping, but in our effort to help, we often hurt. And that was when the disciples said, Oh, Lord, if Lazarus sleepeth, he doeth good. It's a good thing. And Christ says, Guys, you don't even understand. And we briefly spoke about how oftentimes Christians try to be sympathetic, but they really have no idea the turmoil that's going on inside. And from a distance they say, Oh, what's going on in your life is good. Well, from your point of view, it sure doesn't seem good, does it? We talked about that, and then we looked at uh, old Thomas. And we said, well, Thomas wasn't known as dying Thomas, remember? He's known as doubting Thomas, for it was the same guy who in this chapter says, Lord, let us just go die with Lazarus, that later said, though I stick my hands into the wounds, I won't believe. Sometimes Christians just don't know what to say. But we continue our journey through the Lazarus experience. And don't forget, we said, this is an experience that every Christian can have. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Can I die and be raised back to life? I'm saying that Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The goal in the Christian life is to find out the power of God into each individual life. We're to be overcomers. We're to be more than conquerors. We are to be victorious Christian livers. And so we, we're livers. That sounded weird. <laughs> I have a victorious Christian liver. I'm sure of it. We, <laughs> we are to live the Christian life victoriously. There you go. That was educated. That sounded better. Well, tonight we continue our journey through the Lazarus experience. And first of all, I want you to notice tonight, in verse 15, the verse that I said has stuck with me from the beginning, verse number 15, I want you to notice a different delight. Now, what Christ says here is almost shocking. It is almost, it will take you back if you read it, and it seems like that is one of the strangest things for our Lord to say at this time. Verse 15, look with me. The Bible says, and I am glad. Now, what is he saying he's glad towards? Look back in verse 14. He clears all the air for the disciples. Lazarus is dead. And then he goes on to say, and I am glad. What an odd thing for our Lord to say. I mean, after all. Even in John chapter 11, the Bible says that the Lord loved Lazarus. Now, why would he be glad about him being dead? And then he goes on to say, for your sakes. And I'm glad for your sakes. Now, think with me, who is standing near the Lord at this point? It's not Mary. It's not Martha. It's not Lazarus because he's in the grave. Who is it? I can see how the miracle may be beneficial for Mary. 
Because she would see the Lord work in her life. I can even see why the miracle would be profitable for Lazarus. Because, hey, man, he probably wants to be right back to life. I can see why it would be profitable for Martha. But he's standing in the presence of his disciples. And he says, and I'm glad Lazarus is dead for your sakes. I want you to notice, first of all, about this different delight, that it was a personal miracle. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean that Lazarus meant something to the disciples. At this point in the ministry of Christ, there have been two people raised back from the dead. We've even talked about one of them. In fact, we've talked about both of them. If you'll remember, it's the widow of Nain. It's her son. And she walks out of Nain and she is mourning. Everyone around her is mourning. Not only is she a widow, but the Bible informs us that it is her only son that's dead. And so the widow now is sonless or childless and she is distraught. The Lord comes to the gate of the city of Nain and he sees the proceedings taking place. And the Bible says he was moved with compassion as if he held all the ceremonies that were going on. Christ walks over to the body. He touches the body. And the the men who are transporting the body stop. And the Lord just says, arise. And sure enough, that man is risen back from the dead. So have the disciples seen an amazing miracle of someone being raised back to life? Absolutely. The second person is Jairus' daughter. And we talked about Jairus. We talked about him coming to the right place, which was Christ. And he had the right request. And that was, Lord, please help me. Along the way, if you'll remember, the woman with the issue of blood stopped. And he was patient and waited on the Lord's timing. And we talked about all of that. Well, then he goes and Christ finally arrives at Jairus' house. He goes into the back room But he leaves everybody outside of the house except Peter, James, John, and the daughter's two parents. They go into the house, and Christ looks at her, and he says, arise. Sure enough, man, she arises. So now have the disciples seen two people risen? Yeah. So what's so special about Lazarus? Why would it be more impactful for these men to see Lazarus risen than the other two that they've seen? Can I give this to you? At this point, I've seen two different times when the Lord has already been involved in Mary, Martha, or Lazarus' life up until this point. Oh, remember when Mary and Martha were serving and the Lord was at their home And Martha was up busy doing everything. She was serving everybody, being a good host. And old Mary, she was smart. She just sat down there at the feet of Jesus, listening to the lesson, listening to the parables. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary hath chosen the better part. Because she chose to listen to Christ. Now let's just think real life here, okay? If Jesus is in Mary and Martha's home... Could it make sense that the disciples had spoken to Mary and Martha? Could it have made sense that they possibly could have even spoken to Lazarus? Not only is this the time, but if you look back in Luke chapter 7, 
Mary comes to Jesus, and there is some to debate as to whether this is the same Mary, but I believe John here tells us that it is the same Mary who breaks the alabaster box over the Lord's feet and uh, over the Lord's head and anoints him, and he, she washes his feet. The Bible calls her at that time a sinful woman, but here in John, he tells us exactly who it was. It was Mary. And so, let me ask you, if Christ has already dealt with this family, would it make sense for the disciples to be more attached to them than these other miracles? Yeah, they've eaten in their home. They've already seen Christ. For, they were there when Christ forgave Mary. I mean, the day of her salvation, the disciples were there as counselors. So would it make sense that they were more attached to this? It would. And I want to submit to you tonight that this miracle was more personal than the other ones they had seen. Because the other one, they walked up and there was a widow who had a, a child dead. Christ said, arise. Okay. Another one, Jairus, just a stranger, came to him and said, can you come help me? And so the disciples tagged along. And yeah, sure enough, it happened. But this one was personal. This one they knew. And now Christ is on his way to healing Lazarus and raising him from the dead. And Christ says, he's dead, and I am glad for your sakes. You want to know why? Because you don't know Christ will work until he works for you. I can stand up here all day and tell you about the grace that the Lord shed upon mine and my wife's life the day my daughter died. I can tell you all day that story, but it's not personal until you felt it. I could tell you all day the story how I was at West Coast Baptist College and I felt like I was on an island out there with nobody. And I needed to see the Lord work in my life. And I felt like I was not even in the will of God. And I said, Lord, I need to see you tonight. And as I drove down to CVS Pharmacy, I saw a man there on the curb. And I went up to him. I said, hey, do you know today if you died right now, you'd be on your way to heaven? He said, no, I have no clue. And the Lord allowed me to lead that man to the Lord. You say, oh, that's just circumstantial. I say it was God working in my life. And I can tell you those stories all day long. But until it's personal, you really never know for yourself. The disciples tagged along on two different adventures where somebody was risen. But Christ says, guys, I'm glad you're with me today because this one's different. I'm glad... For your sakes, this was a personal miracle. The fact of the matter is today, there are people in this room who need the Lord to work in their life. There are people who are in catastrophes, who are in depression. There are people who need the Lord in their life. Can I say to you today, He wants to do a personal miracle for you. The book of Jeremiah chapter 9 says one of my favorite verses. Verse 23 and 24 says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord which exercises this love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. You see the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 9 is encouraging us. You have problems, you have catastrophes, you have disasters on every front. Take heart, for God knows and cares about you. 
God wants to do a personal miracle for you. And I have to say, until you've seen it in your own life, you'll never really realize how powerful and perfect the miracles of God are. Not only was it a personal miracle, it would be a preparing miracle. Verse 15, the Bible says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. To the intent you may believe. Let's think about this for a second. Who's he talking to again? The disciples. Now, who are the disciples? These are men who he has said and taught, carry your cross. And at this point in history, the cross was not some pendant people wear around their neck. The cross was not some bumper sticker people put on their vehicle. The cross was a torture device. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ said, carry your electric chair for me. He, he, he's even said, guys, you have to leave family, you have to leave home, you have to leave comforts, you have to come follow a man who doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And now he's saying, I'm glad for your sakes to the intent that you might believe. What, what do they need to believe? What do they need to believe? They need to believe that Christ has power over everything. What was he trying to teach them this day? Was he trying to teach them that his power is enough? That his presence is real? That his providence is always sufficient? What was he trying to teach them? The answer is yes. All of the above. Christ was trying to teach them this day that as they went on to their future ministries, they would need the power that he was about to display on Lazarus' life. He's trying to say, guys, come watch what I can do so that you can do the same. Many people don't know this. Acts chapter 9, Peter finds himself in the same predicament. Somebody's dead. And they come to the man of God and they say, Peter, some." Our, our friend died. Peter goes into that person, gets down on one knee. Her name was Dorcas. I would have just rather been dead. Peter gets down on one knee. You know what he says? Arise. You know why Peter needed to be there? It's because he needed to see the power of God this day. So in Acts chapter 9... He could demonstrate the power of God in his own life. Say, Brother Andrew, I, I'm probably not going to be raising anybody from the dead. I don't know. You ever led somebody through the plan of salvation? It's better. It's better. For if I call somebody from the grave and they still die and go to hell, what does that do for them? But today I was able to take the word of God and start at John 3.16. And I said, you know, you've probably heard this verse before. God so loved the world. I was able to go through the Romans road and I was able to look at that person. I was able to say, hey, friend, uh, would you like to ask Christ to be your Savior today? And with tears in their eyes, I said, yeah, I would. There's nothing better. You, you know, I, I've got trophies. I, I, I've, I've won things. I, I, I've won competitions. There's nothing better than seeing a soul come to know Jesus Christ. You know why we need to learn during our trials? 
You want to know why we need to see the miracles of God in our lives and in the lives of others? So when our Acts chapter 9 comes, we're there. We say, this ain't no big thing. I remember my John chapter 11. I remember back there not so long ago when Christ did this very thing in my own life. Now I want to see it happen in yours. You say, I don't know what type of ministry I may have. You never know until Christ will show it to you, but I promise it will be something more than you could ever imagine. Say, Brother Andrew, I'm going through something I can't even imagine. You know the best people to counsel are the ones who have already been there. It is. It's hard for me to counsel somebody on certain things, but since I've experienced other things in my life, it's a lot easier for me to share what I went through. So, you never know what your ministry might be, but it is a perfecting miracle. Warren Wearsby said this, God's love for His children is not pampering love, it is perfecting love. And I believe that. Jesus Christ is trying to make these men something so that in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, they could do something in someone else's life. But not only have we noticed that, we move on now secondly. I want you to notice a deferred dependence. Now we've noticed how that Christ in John chapter 11 verse 15 had a different delight. It seemed a little strange, the words that he would use, uh, it seemed a little different that he would say, and I'm glad Lazarus is dead. But now we look at a deferred dependence, and really this is important for you to notice. In verse number 20, the Bible says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. If thou hadst been here, Lord, my brother had not died. Verse number 22. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. You know, I, I don't want to sit here and criticize Martha. She is in a very traumatic time in her life. She's just watched her brother take her last breath. I don't know the emotions that are going through. I know the Jews that were mourning with her probably didn't help build her faith up, but really were just helping her be a little more depressed. And she approaches Jesus as soon as the word comes that he is on his way. She approaches Jesus, and the first word she says is, Lord, if you had just been here, he had not died. And you can nitpick her all day, but I want to focus on verse 22, because this is what she says. She says, Nevertheless, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it. I want you to notice an acknowledged power. She came to Christ with heavy heart. She came to Christ needing a miracle, and she says, Lord... I have no doubt in my mind that whatever you want to do will happen. Whatever you ask of God, it will come to pass. Sometimes I think we as Christians 
have trouble with this part. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean we have trouble acknowledging our God's power. That it's limitless. That there's nothing out of his control. And we act as if though we're in control or we act as if though everything's out of control. But the fact of the matter, there is nothing too hard for my God. And I think it was wise for Martha to approach the creator of the universe and say, Lord, whatever you want to accomplish in my life, I know it can be, it can be accomplished. Whatever you want to do, I know you can do it. No doubt you have problems. No doubt you have difficulties. But you must first acknowledge the fact that our God is all-powerful. And there is nothing that constrains His might. That's why the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, For by Him... All things were created. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He upholdeth all things by the word of His power. Revelation 4 chapter 11 says that the twenty and four elders seated around the throne of God stand up and say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power and majesty. You understand that when we look at Christ, the one word that comes to our mind is powerful, majestic. Wonderful! There's nothing too hard for him. And you can nitpick Martha all day, but she was wiser than some of us when she said, Lord, I have a problem, but I know without a shadow of a doubt, whatever you want to do, it's going to happen. Christ has power to fix your problem, there's no doubt. Christ has authority to fix your difficulty, there's no doubt. She was wise in acknowledging his power. Secondly, you cannot overlook what she said next in verse 24. There was an accepted departing. Look in verse number 23. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Almost like our Lord offers comfort to her. Uh, Don't worry, Martha, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, look at the faith she uh, exudes here. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, she now has had four days to come to terms with her brother's death. She comes to Christ and she says, Lord, if you'd have just been here, I know he wouldn't have died. Nevertheless, whatever you say, whatever you ask of God, I know he will do it for you. Christ says, Martha, it's going to be okay. Your brother Lazarus will rise. And she has so much faith in God, she says, Lord, I know I'll see him again. I know in the resurrection of the last day, my brother will rise. And I don't know how you read it, but the good thing is I'm preaching so I can read it however I want. And to me, she's saying, Lord, I'm content. I know, Lord. One day I'm going to hear the trumpet sound. One day, Lord, I'm going to be able to look on the face of my beloved brother I'm going to be able to look at his face and, and I'm going to say, Lazarus, is that you? And I'm going to know him. And Lord, I'm thankful for that day I'm going to see him. But we know the end of the story. But don't act like Christ has already done the miracle before he has. Martha was so 
faithful to God that she said, Lord, I know everything is going to be all right. Does the Lord have power to fix your problem? Yes. Will you be content if he doesn't? I mean, what if he chooses to go a different route than comfort? What if it's a little more taxing on you than just, Oh, Lord, thanks for fixing my problem. What if there is some hard times? How many of you remember the story of Job? Man of God, the Bible says that he was perfect, upright, and a steward evil. It says that he was such a godly man that when Satan came to brag in the face of our God and say, God, there's not a single man on earth that would stay faithful to you because of what I've done in, in Adam's fall. God looked at him and said, oh, Satan, there's one. And if you read that story, Job doesn't necessarily deserve any of what goes on. But he did it for God's glory. Now, we know how it all turns out. But Job loses his family, loses his children, loses his cattle, loses all the wealth that he had. He loses his health. Uh, he, he becomes a very unhealthy man. Really, if you want to go as far to say he loses his friends, because they seem pretty backstabbing if you read the story, Job is literally at the end of his rope, and nobody's there to catch him. You want to hear what he says? Job chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine ways before him. What a powerful verse. But that's not the only thing Job said. Job chapter 23, verse 10 says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He says, If God chooses to slay me, I'll be content. But if he chooses to let me come out of this trial, I'll be so happy with the way it turns out. But that's not the only thing he said. Job chapter 27, verse 5 says this. Pay attention. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove my integrity from you. In other words, Job says, Lord, God forbid that I would correct you. God forbid that I would say that you're making a mistake in my life. God forbid that I would say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are uh, higher than my thoughts. God, God forbid that I would ever say, Lord, you're not allowed to make me uncomfortable. What if God doesn't choose to fix your problem like you think it ought to be fixed? Will we be content like Job and say, Lord, even if you chose to kill me, I'll be faithful to you. Lord, I'm thankful for this trial, for when I come out of it, I'll be just the more pure for you. Lord, through this trial, may I never correct you and say you're wrong in doing something to me, your child. Many of you, no doubt, have sung hymnals by the lady named Fanny Crosby. No doubt, most of you that have heard her name or heard anything about her know that she was blind. She authored over 900 hymnals. She authored so many hymnals that she began writing ghost-write names so as not to embarrass the other hymn writers in our hymnals. She didn't want her name all throughout our hymnals, so she wrote hymns as a ghostwriter uh, uh, under a pen name. 
She was a great woman of God. What I did not know, and what you may not know, is she was not born blind. Two months old, she was sick. She was a perfectly healthy baby, but she came ill. At two months old, her family doctor was out of town, so they went to another man, and that man pretended to be a doctor. He was fake. He was a fraud. And he issued treatment to fix her illness, and that treatment was what rendered her blind. Fanny Crosby did all that she did for God, even after those terrible circumstances. One well-meaning pastor looked at Fanny Crosby, and, and he said, I think it is a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Fanny Crosby responded, Do you know that if at birth, if I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. What a woman of God. At eight years old, she wrote her first verse of a hymnal. And that line sounded like this. Oh, what a happy soul I am, though I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. Little eight-year-old girl, she can't go play with her friends. She doesn't get to enjoy beautiful things like a sunset. And yet she was content with what God had done in her life. Does God have the power to fix your problem? Yes, he does. But he also has the prerogative to. And may we as Christians trust our God so much. May we have so much faith in him to say, Lord, whatever it is, I'll gladly accept it to glorify you. When we look at those two things this, this evening. But finally, and this is probably my favorite part of the story, we cannot overlook a divine declaration. A divine declaration. Look in verse number 25. This is one of the most powerful, one of the most popular verses in all the Bible. Jesus has told Martha, Martha, your, your brother's going to rise again. Martha says, Lord, I know that in the last day I'll see him again. I'm thankful for that truth. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. And the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. A divine declaration from a divine God. Oh, he looks at her and says, Martha, Martha, you don't understand. Not only can I fix the problem, I'm going to. Because it's in my nature to live. It's in my nature to rise. It's in my nature to demonstrate power in my children's life. I want you to notice three things before we leave. First of all, notice the familiar reference. What's the first words that really pop out to you as Jesus saith unto her? He says, I am. A familiar reference, is it not? You know... It's familiar because of what happens in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses has 
now escaped from Egypt after slaying a man. Moses is not this Egyptian prince that Disney wants us to believe he is. Moses is a lowly shepherd on the backside of the desert. Exodus chapter 3, Moses one day is uh, moving the, the herd along and he looks over and there's a burning bush. Y'all remember this story? And that bush is burning but not consumed. And Moses, being a pretty curious fella, as I would be as well, goat, does that look strange to you too? Because shepherds talk to the goats and the sheep, obviously. Moses says, I think I'm going to go over and check that bush out. He walks over to the bush, and the bush begins to speak. Now, I was curious. I ain't crazy. This is where I'm running, okay? But Moses stays and has a meeting with God. And God says, in the burning bush, I am the, the God of your father. He goes on to say, I am the God that will deliver the, my children from Egypt. And Moses says, okay, okay, okay. When I go to tell people that your children, when I go to tell them who sent me, what am I to, what am I to say? You know what Jesus, what God says out of the burning bush? I am that I am. Moses, when, when they ask you what to say, tell them this. Tell them I am sent you. It's a very familiar reference. You see, Jesus here is not only claiming to have power to fix the problem, he's claiming to be God. And I'm thankful that my Lord, my God, my Savior came to this earth and loved me so much that he died for me. But not only did he do that, he loves me so much that he ever lives and abideth to make intercession for me. That he cares so much about me that even though I'm annoying to him, even though he should not care about me, he does. Oh, he loved me so much that the God of the universe says, I am. The familiar reference. I want you to also notice the fitting reference. Verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now what's unique about this is this is unique to her problem. This is the fifth I am of the book of John. The Lord has now used five different I am. He uses, I am the bread of life. Contextually, what's taking place at that time is, there's men and women who are hungry. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, brings a lad to Jesus and says, 200 penny worth is not sufficient that we should feed all these people, but this lad right here has five loaves and two fishes. Y'all remember the story? Y'all with me? You, not you had something to do. Gobble at me. Whatever you got to do, make, make me think you're paying attention. You know what I mean? And these people are on the mountain there, they're getting hungry, and the Lord has compassion on them. He sees that they're, 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 they're hungry, and he says, okay, I'm going to take those five loaves, and I'm going to take those two fishes, and I'm going to do a miracle here today, so that when we gather the fragments of it all, when we gather the leftovers, or we take up the doggy bags, there's 12 extra baskets full of bread and fish. What a miracle. Now, if you continue to read... The next day, Christ has departed from these people. 
the people begin to look for Christ saying, hey, that guy bought our supper last night. Let's go find him again. And the Bible even says that they begin to sail to find Christ. So they get in boats and they're tracking him down. I mean, a good meal's hard to find, right? And so they get in the boat and they go to find Christ. And Christ sees them. He says, you come to me because you ate the bread. But I am the bread of life. If any man will eat of me, he'll never hunger again. You know what's unique about that? Is it was unique to those people. And Christ says, oh, you need bread? I am the bread. The second I am that the Lord uses is he says, I am the light of the world. If you want to understand what's taking place there, people bring a sinful woman to the Lord. And they're accusing her and they're saying, Lord, Mosaic law says that she ought to die for what she's done. And the Lord kneels down and writes something in the sand and he says these words, let him who's perfect cast the first stone. And with rocks in their hands, the power of the word of my Savior cut them straight to their heart. And they realized there was nobody worthy to throw a stone. And one by one, they dropped their stone and they walked away. The woman looks at Christ. Christ looks at the woman and he says, go and sin no more. The next verse, I am the light of the world. See, that woman had been living in darkness. And Christ says, I am the light. What's unique is, he was what he needed, what she needed him to be. So we've seen, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Thirdly, I am the door, John chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And he's standing in the mountains looking at the surrounding hills at the sheep and the shepherds. And Christ says, I am the door. I am what keeps them safe. I am what allows them entrance and access. I am the door. He's looking at sheep as they enter in the gate for their night so as wolves are not to take them at night. So he says, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. He says, I am the good shepherd. In the same chapter, John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. He then goes on to say, a good shepherd layeth down his life for his sheep. Is that not what Christ did for us? You see, what's unique about all the I am's is, Christ was what the person needed him to be. Now find your place in John chapter 11. Martha distraught. Martha hurting. She just watched her brother breathe his last breath. She's come to grips with the fact that she won't see her brother again until Christ returns. And he he resurrects him, if you will. She's not going to see him again. And Christ looks at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Christ was what Martha needed him to be. The fact of the matter today is, Christ is exactly what you need him to be. You've got financial crisis? Christ says, I am 
you've got family turmoil, uh, you and your wife aren't getting along, you and your teenager haven't spoken in weeks, Christ says, I am. You, you've got things going on at the workplace, pressures bearing down on you, things you can't handle, you think you're going to have to give it all up. Christ says, I am. You, you've got things on your plate that nobody knows about. You've got difficulties. You've got strife. Christ says, I am. I don't know what your problem is, but the answer always remains the same. Christ looks at his children and says, I am. He's always sufficient. He's exactly what you need, and he's right on time. May we as Christians just trust him, and we have faith to say, Lord, you are enough for me. Don't forget about how powerful our God is. Don't forget about the fact that he loves you, and he is always exactly what we need. Finally, I want you to notice this, and we're done. The foretelling reference. Now, in verse number 25, that's not the end. Jesus saith unto him, uh, or Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Well, Lord, it's a little hard for Lazarus to believe much of anything right now. He's dead. Verse 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? You want to know what's so special about this promise? Is this promise wasn't to Lazarus. This was to us. Christ looked through the eons of time. He looked on down the line at, at, at this day and at this time. And he said, one day there will be a, 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 a little red-headed guy uh, screaming and yelling in a high-pitched voice. And he's going to be shouting all these crazy things. And he's going to look at each and every individual and he's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. If any man believe in me, he shall not die. This promise was not to Lazarus. It was to us. This morning, I looked at a lady right in the eyeball, and I said, First John tells me that these things are written that I may know I have eternal life. See, I don't have to live in doubt. I know my God is the resurrection. I know my God is the life. I know without a shadow of a doubt, He came to this earth to save me from my sins. There's no doubt about it. He loved me enough to die for me. I don't have a doubt. Jesus says, if any man believe on me, he'll never die. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. See, salvation is not found in works. It's not found in a plan. It's found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is trust in that, plan, that person, and you'll never have to doubt it ever again. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 encourages us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, there is no other name. There is no other way. He is the truth and the life. 
He is the resurrection. Tonight, if you leave this church service with getting nothing more than this, you've got a great blessing. You can be saved. You can know. You don't have to doubt. You know, the thing that bothers me the most is how many teenagers I go to youth camp with and I have to put my arm around them and they say, Brother Andrew, I thought I was saved all that time. And I just, my heart breaks because I know there's adults that will never have a youth camp. Say, what do you mean? I mean, I'm afraid there's adults that have turned off the moving of God's Spirit so much in their life that they're not saved and they just don't want to admit it. There's no other way. It's only through Christ. You know why I stand up here and I say these words tonight? You say, I don't know why you'd be preaching this. You're preaching to the choir. There's a lot of choir members that need to start acting like they're saved. See, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, you act like the Spirit of God. You act like God would want you to act church, we're not acting like we ought to act. You know what I blame it on? Not enough of us are saved. And we have put ourselves in denial. Saying, oh, I remember the time. I remember the tile I knelt down on. But salvation is not found in a tile. It's not found in a stopwatch. It's found in trusting Christ. There is no other way. Let's just be very transparent and open tonight. Your pride ain't worth you dying and going to hell. You swallowing, you say, I've taught Sunday school class. I've been the one to lead others through the plan of salvation. Well, that's no reason for you to die and go to hell. Not when Christ stands up and says, I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the way. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby men must be saved. Don't shove the voice down. If the Lord's speaking to you tonight, maybe you need to come forward and get saved. You say, how do I know? Do you produce the fruits of the Spirit? I mean, do you live like it? Because Christians who are saved live like it. And believe me, I'm not trying to cast doubt in your mind. I'm trying to cast a final hook. I'm trying to throw out a lifeline, friend. I'm trying to help you. I don't want you to sit in the pew and rot away and die and go to hell. I'm trying to say that tonight there's a preacher who has just a little enough backbone to stand up here and say that you as an adult can come forward and realize that you've been living a lie that you've not been doing what you ought to do, and that you can trust Christ. It was this winter, me and my dad and some of the staff guys went down and we decided to go hunt in Stuttgart, Arkansas. We had the opportunity, the Lord's been good to us, He's blessed us, and, and we went down there, and if you don't know anything about Stuttgart, Arkansas, it is the duck hunting capital not of the United States, of the world. There are at any given time, from what I've heard, 8 million ducks living within the confines of Stuttgart, Arkansas. That's a lot of ducks. 
it is so overpopulated with ducks, and, and it has to do with them farming a lot of rice in that general area. It's down the Mississippi Flyway. I don't want to get all technical for you non-duck hunters, but basically all you got to know is the migration leads right to Stuttgart. And so my dream has been to go to Stuttgart. And I have been so excited. And you say, I ain't even ever heard of this. It's a town about the size of Joshua. There's just a lot of ducks there. And you come in, and they've got big banners hanging, says, Welcome Hunters to the duck hunting capital of the world. You drive in, there's flooded rice fields, there's ducks everywhere, and that is where I got to go hunting. If you were to ask any duck hunter where they wanted to go duck hunting, if they have half a brain, which a lot of duck hunters don't. If they have half a brain, they'll say, Stuttgart, Arkansas. It is as close to a sure thing as there can be. And yet, I sat in a blind one day and didn't fire a shell. Nothing. The skies looked about like they do now. Didn't shoot. Five hours we sat in that duck blind. Nothing. I told you I'm an animal lover. I've been telling you guys that all this time. But there's a big difference between as close to a sure thing and a sure thing. See, some of us have been living on as close to a sure thing as you can get. I mean, Brother Andrew, I am 99.99999. Not good enough. Not when Jesus offers the promise of eternal life. Not when he says, these things have I written that ye may know ye have eternal life. I'm not trying to make you doubt. I'm trying to say tonight, there's a God in heaven looking down on this church and there's a spirit of God moving in this church and he's saying, if that sinner would come forward and get saved, every angel in heaven would say, one more sinner has come home. Friend, is the spirit of God moving in your heart? Is he convincing you that maybe all the stuff you've done has been in your own power and not the power of the resurrection? Not the power of the spirit of God because you don't have the spirit of God. I ask you tonight, have you met the resurrection? Have you experienced the life? Because any man who comes unto him will not.